Section 17 of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo de Amicis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. April, Part 3. Convalescence. Thursday, 20th. Who could have told me, when I returned from that delightful trip with my father, that for ten days I should not see the country or the sky again? I have been very ill, in danger of my life. I have heard my mother sobbing. I have seen my father very, very pale, gazing intently at me, and my sister Sylvia and my brother talking in a low voice, and the doctor with his spectacles who was there every moment, and who said things to me that I did not understand. In truth— I have been on the verge of saying a final farewell to every one. Oh, my poor mother! I passed three or four days at least, of which I recollect almost nothing, as though I had been in a dark and perplexing dream. I thought I beheld at my bedside my kind schoolmistress of the upper primary, who was trying to stifle her cough in her handkerchief in order not to disturb me. In the same manner I confusedly recall my teacher, who bent over to kiss me, and who pricked my face a little with his beard and I saw, as in a mist, the red head of Crossi, the golden curls of De Rossi, the Calabrian clad all in black, all pass by, and Garone, who brought me a mandarin orange with its leaves, and ran away in haste because his mother is ill. Then I awoke, as from a very long dream, and understood that I was better from seeing my father and mother smiling, and hearing Sylvia singing softly. Oh, what a sad dream it was! Then I began to improve every day. The little mason came and made me laugh once more for the first time with his hare's face. And how well he does it, now that his face is somewhat lengthened through illness, poor fellow. And Coretti came, and Garoffi came to present me with two tickets in his new lottery of a penknife with five surprises, which he purchased of a second-hand dealer in the Via Bertola. Then yesterday, while I was asleep, Precossi came and laid his cheek on my hand without waking me and as he came from his father's workshop, with his face covered with coal-dust, he left a black print on my sleeve, the sight of which caused me great pleasure when I awoke. How green the trees have become in these few days, and how I envy the boys whom I see running to school with their books when my father carries me to the window. But I shall go back there soon myself. I am so impatient to see all the boys once more, and my seat, the garden, the streets, to know all that has taken place during the interval, to apply myself to my books again and to my copy-books, which I seem not to have seen for a year. How pale and thin my poor mother has grown! Poor father, how weary he looks! And my kind companions who came to see me, and walked on tiptoe and kissed my brow. It makes me sad, even now, to think that one day we must part. Perhaps I shall continue my studies with Zerossi and with some others. But how about all the rest? When the fourth grade is once finished, then good-bye. We shall never see each other again. I shall never see them again at my bedside when I am ill. Garone, Precossi, Coretti, who are such fine boys, and kind and dear comrades. Never more. Friends Among the Working Men, Thursday, 20th. Why never more, Enrico? That will depend on yourself. When you have finished the fourth grade you will go to the high school, and they will become working men. But you will remain in the same city for many years, perhaps. Why, then, will you never meet again? When you are in the University of the Lyceum, you will seek them out in their shops or their workrooms, and it will be a great pleasure for you to meet the companions of your youth once more, as men at work. 
I should wonder to see you neglecting to look up Coretti or Precossi, wherever they may be. And you will go to them, and you will pass hours in their company, and you will see, when you come to study life and the world, how many things you can learn from them, which no one else is capable of teaching you, both about their arts and their society and your own country. And have a care, for if you do not preserve these friendships, it will be extremely difficult for you to acquire other similar ones in the future. Friendships, I mean to say, outside of the class to which you belong. And thus you will live in one class only, and the man who associates with but one social class is like the student who reads but one book. Let it be your firm resolve, then, from this day forth, that you will keep these good friends even after you shall be separated, and from this time forth cultivate precisely these by preference, because they are the sons of working men. You see, men of the upper classes are the officers, and men of the lower classes are the soldiers of toil, and thus in society, as in the army, not only is the soldier no less noble than the officer, since nobility consists in work and not in wages, in valor and not in rank, but if there is also a superiority of merit, it is on the side of the soldier, of the workmen, who draw the lesser profit from the work. Therefore, love and respect above all others among your companions, the sons of the soldiers of labor. Honor in them the toil and the sacrifices of their parents. Disregard the differences of fortune and of class, upon which the base alone regulate their sentiments and courtesy. Reflect that from the veins of laborers in the shops and in the country issued nearly all that blessed blood which has redeemed your country. Love Garone, love Coretti, love Precossi, love your little mason, who in their little working men's breasts possess the hearts of princes, and take an oath to yourself that no change of fortune shall ever wipe out these friendships of childhood from your soul. Swear to yourself that forty years hence, if, while passing through a railway station, you recognize your old Garone in the garments of an engineer, with a black face, ah, I cannot think what to tell you to swear. I am sure that you will jump upon the engine and fling your arms round his neck, though you were even a senator of the kingdom. Your father. Garone's mother, Saturday, 29th. On my return to school, the first thing I heard was some bad news. Garone had not been there for several days because his mother was seriously ill. She died on Saturday. Yesterday morning, as soon as we came into school, the teacher said to us, The greatest misfortune that can happen to a boy has happened to poor Garone. His mother is dead. He will return to school tomorrow. I beseech you, boys, respect the terrible sorrow that is now rending his soul. When he enters, greet him with affection and gravely. Let no one jest, let no one laugh at him, I beg of you. And this morning, poor Garone came in, a little later than the rest. I felt a blow at my heart at the sight of him. His face was haggard, his eyes were red, and he was unsteady on his feet. It seemed as though he had been ill for a month. I hardly recognized him. He was dressed all in black. He aroused our pity. No one even breathed. All gazed at him. No sooner had he entered than at the first sight of that schoolroom, whither his mother had come to get him nearly every day, of that bench over which she had bent on so many examination days to give him a last bit of advice, and where he had so many times thought of her, in his impatience to run out and meet her, he burst into a desperate fit of weeping. The teacher drew him aside to his own place and pressed him to his breast, and said to him, Weep. Weep, my poor boy, but take courage. Your mother is no longer here, but she sees you. She still loves you, 
She still lives by your side, and one day you will behold her once again, for you have a good and noble soul like her own. Take courage. Having said this, he accompanied him to the bench near me. I dared not look at him. He drew out his copy-books and his books, which he had not opened for many days, and as he opened the reading-book at a place where there was a cut representing a mother leading her son by the hand, he burst out crying again, and laid his head on his arm. Their master made us a sign to leave him thus, and began the lesson. I should have liked to say something to him, but I did not know what. I laid one hand on his arm and whispered in his ear, "'Don't cry, Garone.' He made no reply, and without raising his head from the bench, he laid his hand on mine and kept it there a while. At the close of school no one spoke to him. All hovered round him respectfully and in silence. I saw my mother waiting for me and ran to embrace her, but she held me back and gazed at Garone. For the moment I could not understand why, but then I saw that Garone was standing apart by himself and looking at me, and he had a look of indescribable sadness which seemed to say— you are embracing your mother, and I shall never embrace mine again. You still have a mother, and mine is dead. And then I knew why my mother had thrust me back, and I went out without taking her hand. Giuseppe Mazzini, Saturday, 29th This morning also Garone came to school with a pale face, and his eyes swollen with weeping, and he hardly cast a glance at the little gifts which we had placed on his desk to console him but the teacher had brought a page from a book to read to him in order to encourage him. He first informed us that we are to go to-morrow at one o'clock to the town hall to witness the award of the medal for civic valour to a boy who has saved a little child from the Po, and that on Monday he will dictate the description of the festival to us instead of the monthly story. Then, turning to Garone, who was standing with drooping head, he said to him, "'Make an effort, Garone, and write down what I dictate to you as well as the rest.' We all took our pens, and the teacher dictated. Giuseppe Mazzini was born in Genoa in 1805 and died in Pisa in 1872, a grand, patriotic soul, the mind of a great writer, the first inspirer and apostle of the Italian Revolution, who, out of love for his country, lived for forty years poor, exiled, persecuted, a fugitive heroically steadfast in his principles and in his resolutions. Giuseppe Mazzini, who adored his mother, and who derived from her all that there was noblest and purest in her strong and gentle soul, wrote as follows to a faithful friend of his to console him in the greatest of misfortunes. These are almost his exact words. My friend, you will never more behold your mother on this earth. That is the terrible truth. I do not attempt to see you, because yours is one of those solemn and sacred sorrows which each must suffer and conquer for himself. Do you understand what I mean to convey by the words, one must conquer sorrow? Conquer the least sacred, the least purifying part of sorrow, that which, instead of rendering the soul better, weakens and debases it. But the other part of sorrow, the noble part, that which enlarges and elevates the soul, that must remain and never leave you more. Nothing here below can take the place of a good mother. In griefs, in the consolations which life may still bring you, you will never forget her, but you must recall her, love her, mourn her death, in a manner which is worthy of her. Oh, my friend, hearken to me, death exists not, it is nothing. It cannot even be understood. Life is life, and it follows the law of life, progress. 
Yesterday you had a mother on earth. Today you have an angel elsewhere. All that is good will survive the life of the earth with increased power. Hence also the love of your mother. She loves you now more than ever, and you are responsible for your actions to her more even than before. It depends upon you, upon your actions, to meet her once more, to see her in another existence. You must therefore, out of love and reverence for your mother, grow better, and cause her to joy for you. Henceforth you must say at every act, Would my mother approve this? Her transformation has placed a guardian angel in the world for you, to whom you must refer in all your affairs, in everything that pertains to you. Be strong and brave. Fight against desperate and vulgar grief. Have the tranquillity of great suffering in great souls. And that is what she would have. Garone, added the teacher, be strong and tranquil, for that is what she would have. Do you understand? Garone nodded assent, while great and fast-flowing tears streamed over his hands, his copy-book, and his desk. Civic Valor, Monthly Story At one o'clock we went with our schoolmaster to the front of the town hall to see the medal for civic valor bestowed on the lad who had saved one of his comrades from the Poe. On the front terrace waved a huge, tri-colored flag. We entered the courtyard of the palace. It was already full of people. At the further end of it was visible a table with a red cover and papers on it, and behind it a row of gilded chairs for the mayor and the council. The ushers of the municipality were there, with their under-waistcoats of sky-blue and their white stockings. To the right of the courtyard a detachment of policemen, who had a great many medals, was drawn up in a line and beside them a detachment of custom-house officers. On the other side were the firemen in festive array, and numerous soldiers, not in line, who had come to look on, cavalrymen, sharpshooters, artillerymen. Then all around were gentlemen, country people, and some officers and women and boys who had assembled. We crowded into a corner where many scholars from other buildings were already collected with their teachers. Near us was a group of boys between ten and eighteen years of age, belonging to the common people, who were talking and laughing loudly, and we made out that they were all from Borgo Po, comrades or acquaintances of the boy who was to receive the medal. Above, all the windows were thronged with the employees of the city government, the balcony of the library was also filled with people who pressed against the balustrade, and in the one on the opposite side, which is over the entrance gate, stood a crowd of girls from the public schools, and many daughters of soldiers with their pretty blue veils. It looked like a theatre. All were talking merrily, glancing every now and then at the red table, to see whether anyone had made his appearance. A band of music was playing softly at the end of the portico. The sun beat down on the lofty walls. It was beautiful. All at once, everyone began to clap their hands from the courtyard, from the balconies, from the windows. I raised myself on tiptoe to look. The crowd which stood behind the red table had parted, and a man and a woman had come forward. The man was leading a boy by the hand. This was the lad who had saved his comrade. The man was his father, a mason, dressed in his best. The woman, his mother, small and blonde, had on a black gown. The boy, also small and blonde, had on a grey jacket. At the sight of all those people, and at the sound of that thunder of applause, all three stood still, not daring to look or move. A municipal usher pushed them along to the side of the table on the right. All remained quiet for a moment, and then, once more, the applause broke out on all sides. 
The boy glanced up at the windows, and then at the balcony with the daughters of soldiers. He held his cap in his hand, and he did not seem to understand very thoroughly where he was. It struck me that he looked a little like Coretti in the face, but he was redder. His father and mother kept their eyes fixed on the table. In the meantime, all the boys from Borgo Po who were near us were making motions to their comrade to attract his attention, and hailing him in a low tone. Pin! Pin! Peanut! At last they made themselves heard. The boy glanced at them and hid his smile behind his cap. At a certain moment the guards drew themselves up to attention. The mayor entered, accompanied by numerous gentlemen. The mayor, all white with a big tri-colored scarf, placed himself beside the table, standing. All the others took their places behind and beside him. The band ceased playing, the mayor made a sign, and everyone grew quiet. He began to speak. I did not understand the first words perfectly, but I gathered he was telling the story of the boy's feet. Then he raised his voice, and it rang out so clear and sonorous through the whole court that I did not lose another word. When he saw from the shore his comrades struggling in the river, already overcome with fear of death, he tore the clothes from his back and hastened to his assistance without hesitating an instant. They shouted to him, You will be drowned. He made no reply. They caught hold of him. He freed himself. They called him by name. He was already in the water. The river was swollen, the risk terrible even for a man. But he flung himself to meet death with all the strength of his little body and his great heart. He reached the unfortunate fellow and seized him just in time, when he was already under water, and dragged him to the surface. He fought furiously with the waves which strove to overwhelm him, with his companion who tried to cling to him, and several times he disappeared beneath the water and rose again with a desperate effort. Obstinate, invincible in his purpose, not like a boy who is trying to save another boy, but like a man, like a father who is struggling to save his son, who is his hope and his life. In short, God did not permit so generous a prowess to be displayed in vain. The child-swimmer tore the victim from the gigantic river and brought him to land, and with the assistance of others rendered him his first succor, after which he returned home quietly and alone, and ingenuously narrated his deed. Gentlemen, beautiful and worthy of veneration is heroism in a man. But in a child, in whom there can be no prompting of ambition or of profit whatever, in a child who must have all the more ardor in proportion as he has less strength, in a child from whom we require nothing, who is bound to nothing, who already appears to us so noble and lovable, not when he acts, but when he merely understands, and is grateful for the sacrifices of others. In a child, heroism is divine. I will say nothing more, gentlemen, I do not care to deck with superfluous praises such simple grandeur. Here before you stands the noble and valorous rescuer. Soldiers, greet him as a brother. Mothers, bless him like a son. Children, remember his name, engrave on your minds his visage, that it may never more be erased from your memories and from your hearts. Approach, my boy. In the name of the King of Italy I give you the medal for civic valor. An extremely loud hurrah, uttered at the same moment by many voices, made the palace ring. The mayor took the medal from the table and fastened it on the boy's breast. Then he embraced and kissed him. The mother placed one hand over her eyes. The father held his chin on his breast. The mayor shook hands with both, and taking the decree of decoration, which was bound with a ribbon, he handed it to the woman. Then he turned to the boy again and said, May the memory of this day, 
which is such a glorious one for you, such a happy one for your father and mother, keep you all your life in the path of virtue and honor. Farewell. The mayor withdrew, the band struck up, and everything seemed to be at an end, when the detachment of firemen opened, and the lad of eight or nine years, pushed forwards by a woman, who instantly concealed herself, rushed towards the boy with the decoration and flung himself in his arms. Another outburst of hurrahs and applause made the courtyard echo. Everyone had instantly understood that this was the boy who had been saved from the Poe, and who had come to thank his rescuer. After kissing him, he clung to one arm, in order to accompany him out. These two, with the father and mother following behind, took their way towards the door, making a path with difficulty among the people who formed in line to let them pass. Policemen, boys, soldiers, women, all mingled together in confusion. All pressed forwards and raised on tiptoe to see the boy. Those who stood near him as he passed touched his hand. When he passed before the schoolboys, they all waved their caps in the air. Those from Borgo Po made a great uproar, pulling him by the arms and by his jacket and shouting, Pin! Hurrah for Pin! Bravo, Pinot! I saw him as he passed very close to me. His face was all aflame and happy. His medal had a red, white, and green ribbon. His mother was crying and smiling. His father was twirling his mustache with one hand, which quivered violently as though he had a fever. And from the windows and the balconies the people continued to lean out and applaud. All at once, when they were on the point of entering the portico, there fell from the balcony of the daughters of soldiers a veritable shower of pansies, of bunches of violets and daisies, which dropped upon the head of the boy and of his father and mother and scattered over the ground. Many people stooped to pick them up and hand them to the mother, and the band at the further end of the courtyard played very, very softly a most entrancing air, which seemed like a song by a great many silvery voices fading slowly into the distance on the banks of a river. End of section 17